Welcome to the Miller Oddcast, a brand new podcast from the Missouri Review. For over 40 years now, TMR has been discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Our quarterly magazine appears in print, digital, and audio formats. Learn more at MissouriReview.com. Hello and welcome to the Miller Oddcast, the Missouri Review podcast where we listen to and discuss the finalists for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize. I'm Mark McKee, Managing Editor, and the weather on the internet is half a billion dogs, 13 mudslides, five of which are on fire, gossip that looks like advertising, and advertising that looks like gossip. Hang on to your brawlies. Thankfully, the Oddcast is here for episode 38 featuring the latest finalist for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize in prose, Time Travel, by Tony Ann Johnson. Tony Ann Johnson's short fiction and essays have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Hunger Mountain, Callaloo, The Emerson Review, Coachella Review, and elsewhere. A novel, Remedy for a Broken Angel, was nominated for a 2015 NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work by a Debut Author. A novella, Homegoing, won Accent Publishing's inaugural novella contest and was released in May of 2021. A linked story collection, Light Skin Gone to Waste, won the 2021 Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction and is forthcoming from the University of Georgia Press in 2022. Time travel is part of this collection. Johnson was the Humanitas Prize-winning screenwriter of the TV movie Ruby Bridges. She also wrote the second installment of the Step Up Dance franchise, Step Up 2, The Streets. Learn more and follow her on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Her social media handles will be up in the show notes. Stick around after the piece to hear me and contest editor Bailey Boyd marvel at the ingenious conceit and the potent emotional resonance. And then listen to it again. Bask in its wisdom and charity. And now, without further ado, here's Time Travel by Tony and Johnson. Time Travel by Tony and Johnson. 21 years later, I'll run into you outside the path station in Hoboken, in front of the wide green awning that leads down to the trains. Sounds of rumbling below and the din of chatter swirling. You'll yell my name above the noise, saying it like a question, as if you could actually be unsure that it's me. I'll turn and totter on the top step just in time. Seconds later and I'd be swept into the stream of bodies flowing to the tracks. It'll be shortly after 5 p.m. on a late September weekday, humid and sunny with air that smells of commuters caught in unexpected high heat. Perspiration will roll down my back and leak between the butt cheeks you used to make fun of. I'll squint against the sun and stare at you. You'll smile with closed lips and brown eyes that'll be gentler than I'll remember. Several seconds will pass before you'll say, Wow! First time I've ever seen you away from home. Where are you living these days? Manhattan, I'll say. Oh, the big city, you'll say, like it's a truly good thing. I'll nod. I won't ask you anything. I'll look at you and wait. Suits of blue, black, gray, and tan will dodge and whoosh past us in both directions, heels clicking on concrete, huffs and impatient scoffs. We'll be in the way. I'll shield my eyes with one hand and be silent for so long, it'll feel impolite. 
You'll hold a cheap gray suit jacket over one shoulder, your white collared shirt bearing sweat marks under the arms. You'll smell of obsession for men, alluring and more sophisticated than the old spice I used to notice at the bus stop during high school when you rarely spoke to me. Your chest will be broad and you'll be slim like me, which will mean something because 21 years earlier, we were chubby six-year-olds foraging together for ding-dongs and Oreos. My mother hid deep in the pantry so we wouldn't overeat. We'd find them and eat them all. And that thrill was a bond we shared. But being connoisseurs of Nabisco cookies and hostess snack cakes and being buddies from the time we could crawl never made our bond as strong as the one you shared with every kid in the neighborhood but me. Someone will bump into you and you'll fall into me and grab my arm before I lose my balance on the top step. Sorry, you all right? You'll ask. I'll say, fine, thanks, and take my arm back. That day, 21 years after I lost you, I'll be wearing a tomato red kufi atop unapologetically kinky hair, wild kinks I tamed the soul out of when I lived across the street from you, hoping straight hair would make me pretty and more like everyone else. But you called me an ugly, bubble-butted nigger at the bus stop. Elementary school became junior high, which turned into high school, and I barely existed. You had all those years to speak to me. That day I'll wonder, why now? I'll have on black chunky boots and a dress that's lime green like Lifesaver's candies. Red, black, and green are Pan-African colors, and I'll wear them because at the time I'll be mad and militant, saying fuck you to you and everyone else from home who said my color, my hair, and my big butt made me ugly. That day at the PATH station, it won't matter to me that you were only a boy when you said those things. I won't smile. I won't be warm. I'll forget any mean things I may have said back at the bus stop. I probably said some because I will remember how you winced at the mention of your fat mom, crippled father, and Port Weinstein birthmarked baby sister. My tongue, sharpened on figurative and literal sticks and stones hurled at me by neighborhood bullies, must have pierced your soft spots sometimes, too. Yet you'll look at me that day with a tenderness that insists cruel words never pass between us. Your dark hair will be short, your skin clean-shaven, clear, the spots of adolescence healed and faded. Your face will flush and your eyes will brighten the way they used to shine when you were my round-cheeked running buddy. You'll look deep into me with such warmth that against my will, you'll begin to melt the icicles that numbed me inside. My name, when you say it, will sound like songs from playtimes past. In your eyes, I'll catch a glimpse of us singing on swings, flying above the grass where we found four-leaf clovers. You'll invite me into a little chamber of your heart where you saved us. But I won't go. I won't be ready to remember how to get there. There will be no mention of what happened to us. 
or what didn't happen that should have. You'll sing my name again, a young boy's sweetness shining out of your grown man's face, and you'll say, You were my first best friend. I'll know you're telling me you're sorry. You didn't mean to hurt me. You were just a kid. I'll nod politely and shrug off your words of apology. I'll carry my bubble butt and my baggage down the stairs, catch my train, and move on with my life. In another 20 years, I'll be middle-aged and softer inside and out. The rough edges of resentment worn down with experience I'll remember how you said my name that day and the way you looked at me with affection. I'll transport myself back to the path station in front of the stairs, trains rumbling below, bodies whooshing by, and I'll be kinder to you. I will. Because by then, I'll know that love is the only feeling left once enough time has passed. Hello, the internet. It's Mark McKee, Managing Editor for the Missouri Review. With me today is Bailey Boyd, Contest Editor for the Missouri Review. And you have just listened to Time Travel by Tony Ann Johnson. This is a very moving piece uh, of writing and and the performance itself, too, I think we find is right on the knife edge of, of kind of like emotional in ways that are just very rewarding, I think, to listen to. We start, I mean, the, the time frame, the way that the piece is organized with the narrator positing a, a, a reunion with a childhood friend on a, a subway platform 20 years on from a, from a moment of I think what we're led to believe is, is, is the moment where a friendship, a childhood friendship fractured. And then we get towards the end of the piece, another 20 years um, that the narrator is moving herself into the future is a really interesting way to kind of, to frame a very difficult moment in the narrator's life and her trajectory as a person and her relationship to this childhood friend who hurt her. What else do we want to say about that, Bailey? I mean, I think it's it, it's what makes this piece incredibly powerful, or at least it's one of the things that makes this piece incredibly powerful because of the, the frequent time travel, because it's not even just the time travel forward, but um, the many instances of the time travel backward and analyzing the many, the many memories of the 21 years ago. And... And, and being able to move between that and the present and the future um, in order to recognize how each part or each um, moment is going to be different and is going to invite different reflection on that um, is incredibly powerful or was incredibly powerful for me um, because that movement forward to the 20 years and, and saying, you know, I will be softer than I will um, I, you know, I do know that I, that I'm going to get to that softer place, 
um, is really extraordinary because um, there's so much already in just the reflection from the 21 years after before even um, thinking about moving forward. And so altogether, it really provides so many different perspectives on this reflection. I think that's so powerful. Mm -hmm. I think it also gives, it gives us in a, in a really subtle way, an indication of just how much reclamation is about being able to narrativize time by putting us, the listener, in a position to hear somebody reflecting back on childhood and being using using the uh, the tool of these these divi these divisions in time, it really controls and owns the as I said before the trajectory of the self of the of the narrator. I think that like it's an element of self-awareness and of self-conscious uh, control that is very effective in communicating a kind of the labors that have gone into uh, regaining or reclaiming a kind of an integral self that is the real, you know, kind of like powerful way to, to, move, to move towards some sort of, I think as, as, as you're indicating this kind of almost kind of transcendent moment in the future where, where a softening will occur. We've had this, this childhood friend and, and there's all kinds of, I mean, they're talking about, she's talking about them finding and, uh, and completely um, eradicating packages of Oreos and various kind of like super sweet snacks in, in, in kind of like defiance of people worrying about their, you know, these kids, you know, I don't know, uh, overeating or whatever. But those, knowing that those 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 two separate kind of uh, twenty year periods or twenty one or whatever, give the give the narrator a kind of control that that is kind of hard won. I think also we should talk about uh, the fact that it's the the piece is also in a in second person address, using using the you of this childhood friend who has, as you've heard uh, after as you've listened to the piece just said something that feels like the pivotal fracture of their friendship uh, has said something reprehensible. Um, there's a way in which it's interesting to me because the, the you address might sound as though she's talking directly to him, but it's not made clear that he'll ever hear any of this or recognize any of it. So it kind of, it, it again folds back into her determination to kind of to uh, to own herself and to and and to kind of like come into her integral self and and her real power. Yeah, you're. I, I think you're right. Um, well, the you, but also also somewhat of the the structure of the piece um, is highlighting the I, right? Like so. Mm -hmm. We hear the you all throughout the piece. And like you're saying, we we don't think that the that the childhood friend that is now standing on the subway platform with the narrator, it isn't probably going to hear anything because um there there's nothing being said between them, right? In that moment, we know that 
the the pause there when the narrator is refusing to give this person anything is Mm -hmm. almost becoming uncomfortable because of the silence between them but Mm -hmm. the silence is on her end is filled with with so much right and it's filled with all of these things um and so yeah it's doing this interesting this interesting emphasis on that on the eye actually which is where we're we're seeing all of this reflection happening, even though outwardly it's, this is a silent moment. Right. And those details and the way that the narrator is corralling those details and setting them down really, really shows the, I mean, again, I keep going back to words like labor and, 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 and integration and and reclamation. Um, it's almost a demo of being able to do that or what the work is in, in that particular kind of uh, experience of someone having hurt you in, in, this, in, in a really awful way and yet kind of like rethreading back and like without, uh, without, the, you know, without the middle part, without the 21 years from now, I will see you on a platform and your eyes will be softer, but like, but there's no, she's not giving anything up. There's no, there's no kind of notion of like, oh, well, you were a kid. She says that, but I think the choice not to, uh, especially the choice in the, on the platform, not to give anything up mm-hmm. as she's still in the process of kind of, you know, making herself strong mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and telling I mean, a whole a whole category of people probably to you know to fuck off like in the in the figure of this childhood friend mm-hmm. is key, <laughs> and it, it, if we think about it and if we listen to it again, uh, which we always encourage you to do, I think what you see there is a kind of uh, is her winning a battle on some level because she doesn't go oh well I'll just forgive you you're just a kid and just slug it off it's like nope um, you were just a kid but like I was hurt. And, yeah. uh, and it, it mattered to me. And it also, uh, my, my choice is to kind of like, is to not give you anything that excuses you from that. Right. Yeah. I think that's, I think each of the kind of stops on the timeline are extremely important. I mean, we talked about that a little bit, but the, the, the knowing that I will soften, but not right now, mm-hmm. um, right yeah. now I'm, I'm in a different, a different place. And that's, and that's, that's where I need to be. And, um, and not, not being any sort of apologetic about it. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, with this question of forgiveness that came up when we were talking about this before we started recording, the interesting thing about negotiations like this which are tricky and which are hard to kind of like come to absolute kind of conviction over. Um, there's a real, there's a real resolute understanding of, of who she is that, and who, and who she will be that, that probably like lets us know that though she, she asserts that she will soften, you know, 20 years from now mm-hmm. and that, that softening will occur because like after enough time has has passed, that love is all that should remain. But you, 
I started talking about kind of forgiveness and you said, well, I think that the, I'm not going to take the words out of your mouth, but I think you made a crucial distinction between forgiveness and love. Yeah. I think it's interesting that the, that where we end is on love. And and so I have been thinking about um, if that also implies that in 20 years, the forgiveness that the childhood friend seems to be looking for here, mm-hmm. um, if that forgiveness is really going to happen, um, does that forgiveness need to happen in order for the love to, to take over and to be all that's left? And I don't, I don't know that that's true. Um, or at least I guess this piece is inviting me to, to consider that a little bit more deeply. Um, because I think after listening to this piece and, and talking about it a little bit more, um, you know, it's an interesting thought to think about love not requiring that forgiveness and not ever needing it. And, and still there can be, there can be love. That's all that's left, but forgiveness might not be um, a step that, that a person needs to take in order to get there. I think that, and I think your reading is really good there. It's, it's a dynamic proposition. I think for most of us to, to think of, love coexisting with not forgiving a specific action. I think it's a, it's a kind of radical understanding of love that we don't always, I mean, I think it's often lumped in, in the culture, the idea of like loving somebody means kind of forgiving endlessly. And it's a, it's a really liberating move of this piece to, to at at the very least question, if not just completely providing us with a decoupling of forgiveness from love. Yeah. And I think that in, and it's, that's kind of how, um, or one of the ways in which that power too is still, is still maintained, right? Like I'm, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, the, the words I think that, that we get are, I will soften in 20 years and love will be all that's left. And there's no mention, um, that in yeah. 20 years I'll be able to forgive you. Right. And so, yeah, I think that's so incredibly um, powerful and also and also wise because it still maintains um, that that integrity of that narrator for for having to go through all of those steps in order in order to get there and being able to say no, I'm not going to forgive you. And I don't know, maybe the maybe the narrator um, is is going to arrive at, at that forgiveness, but also considering that maybe not. <laughs> Maybe yeah. not, but um, but there can still there can still be love, and that can be the only thing that's left. Yeah, I just again to reiterate um, what a great point I think you're making, and and how on on a basic level it's challenging to assumptions that we have culturally that I think is just one of the most powerful and affecting parts of this piece, and I think that in listening to it and hearing and hearing the arrival at that, at that tenet, that like that the softening on some level in the passage of time means that love can be the only thing and should be the only thing that remains. It's just such a, it's (laughs) in an era where it's, where it's sometimes hard to have a lot of hope for humanity to, to hear something like that and to kind of, to, to have it be something that, you can kind of philosophically and emotionally investigate as a result of listening to this is just a real gift. 
I agree. And why would we bother saying anything more when you can just go listen to it again right now mm-hmm. and hear all those, those amazing nuances. And, and I mean, it's just something very powerful about bearing witness to someone building themselves up and, and reclaiming an identity and, and kind of coming into their, coming into their power and to have that power be a soft power is just, yeah, it's really hopeful. I'm very thankful for this piece. I am as well. And um, I'm just going to echo, echo what you've already said, which is the, the invitation for everyone to go listen again and to see, you know, what other kind of reflections this piece, um, this piece brings up for other listeners as well. All right. And now's the time when we wave. Mm. We wave. <laughs> Still waving. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here with us for Miller Oddcast 38, featuring Time Travel by Tony Ann Johnson. Oddcast 39 is on its way soon, so be alert. Thanks, as always, to the Missouri Review Contest editor, Bailey Boyd, and to Patricia Miller for her generous support of the Miller Audio Prize. Just as a reminder, TMR is open for submissions year-round, and we remain dedicated to discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Be heard. Give us the opportunity to discover you. Subscribe or submit your work today. In addition, we have tons of exhilarating and free creative content to read, listen to, and even watch on our website. Learn more at MissouriReview.com.